Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, I'm pretty stoked for this one. Our guest this week is the great Mike Scott of The Waterboys. I think everyone knows The Waterboys. They've been going strong for since around 1979, 1980. And in that time, you, could, you have come to rely on Mike bringing you some epic, gorgeous, life-affirming music. There's just anthems like this one, The Hole of the Moon, which still packs a wallop. It is just as powerful today as it's always been. There's Fisherman's Blues, there's Girl Called Johnny, there's This is the Sea, there's Don't Bang the Drum, there's newer songs like Where the Action Is. He is consistently fantastic at what he does, mixing Irish Celtic, or well, Celtic music, Celtic folk music, with like Bob Dylan's lyricism and John Lennon's uh, kind of uh, taste for mischief and some real punk DIY sensibility. And that's what Mike is doing and has always done with the Waterboys. Now, they have a brand new album out called All Souls Hill. And if you haven't been paying attention to the last few Waterboys albums, Mike has kind of completely, I think, changed up his style. He's really starting to experiment with things like hip hop beats and dance beats and drum loops. It's not the Irish music that you used to listen to back in the day. It's uh, it's very different, very vibrant, very upbeat. So we talk about, in fact, there's a ton of music packed into this episode. We talk a lot about what inspired kind of this new way of doing it. The last like three or four albums have sort of been this way. Not entirely, not entirely. There's, there's still bands, instruments, everything is still featured on all these albums, but there are these forays into like dance music that you would not have expre- uh, expected earlier. I have to be honest, this conversation caught me a little bit off guard because I've always sort of been assumed or seen Mike as somebody who probably didn't want to talk about the past very much, and we don't do a lot of that in, the, in here, but he was so forthcoming with the stories behind so many of these songs. In fact, we kick it off with the whole story of Hole of the Moon. Then I kind of rode that out for a while because that wasn't what I was expecting from Mike Scott. But we got a little bit of everything. We touched on basically every chapter of the career. And maybe the timing was good because I didn't know this going in, but he's working on a super deluxe version of This Is The Sea to come out, I think it's later this year. And so maybe talking about the past and some of those old songs is top of mind. And so asking about Carl Wallinger and you know, how did this song or that song come to be? Maybe now was the right time for that. Anyway, I love him. I love the Waterboys. Talk about bands that make your life better. Mike Scott has that ability, and I'm so grateful for him for that. He called me from his home in Dublin. Okay, so I got to tell you a story. Um, The other night, I'm driving around uh, with my sons in the car, and I'm listening to Modern Blues, which is a great album from a you know a couple of years ago and my boys one is 13 and one is nine and they're like who is this and i said well this is let's get, this is the water boys i'm talking to this guy in a few days i said in fact i may have played these guys for you before here let me show you something and i pull up you know this is the sea and we listen to hole of the moon and they love it and then uh i said well let me so let me play some more for you and then i i pull out the title track this is the sea and we listen to that and my youngest son says, Dad, this sounds like something from a James Bond movie. 
And I thought, what? Well, that's really, uh, really descriptive. That's good. And he's never even seen a James Bond movie. I don't know how he knows this, but in his mind, this is the C sounds like James Bond music. I said, well, let me tell you, what do you think about this one? And then we play, or no, no, I'm sorry. He says, don't bang the drum. What am I thinking? Don't bang the drum sounds like a James Bond song. And uh, then I play, this is the C. And he said, oh, th this sounds like uh, the closing credits of a movie that takes place in the ocean. And he yeah, doesn't even know, right. he's sitting in the back. He doesn't even know that it has anything to do with water. Yeah. And I said, well, that's really interesting because I got kind of turned on to this song when it was playing over the closing credits of a surfing documentary that I saw a few. Writing Giants. That's it. Writing Giants. Yes. Better throw them away. You want to turn your back on your soulless days. Once you were a teller, and now you are free. Once you were a teller. That was the river This is the sea So I thought it was kind of interesting that my nine-year-old kid was so tuned in to the sounds of the water boys that uh, we were having this discussion. Excellent. Having said all that, I want to ask, I'm sure you get asked all the time about Hole of the Moon. I want to ask a few of uh, some of your other songs that I love, but in particular, when you wrote Hole of the Moon, I'm always been curious, did you have that piano riff first? Did you play it with the band? How did you conceive it? I had the, the phrase, I saw the crescent, you saw the Hole of the Moon first. Okay. And that's, suggested the the first verse and then the second verse and i had about three verses of lyric before i, I had the music and that that, that piano riff with this sounds like this that that rhythm was i had i had used that rhythm on a song years before that that had never come out it was called a boy in black leather And 
It was just one of these odd rhythms that I discovered on the piano because I'm a self-taught piano player. I use one oh. finger here, three fingers there. And and lots of those early Waterboy songs, like A Girl Called Johnny in Old England, they've got different variations of my self-taught oh. piano rhythms. And the whole of the moon rhythm is one of those. Uh, and as I say, it was on this this song for years and years. And, and when we were making This Is The Seat, uh, uh, when we began making the record, we we spent two days doing piano demos. Mm. Uh, the band the band didn't come down to the studio for the first couple of days, and me and me and my co-producer recorded everything that I had just piano and vocal, and 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 I tried that that old song that had this piano rhythm, mm. but it, it wasn't really good enough, and it, it it wasn't really making it for me. But it it put the piano rhythm back in my mind. And then I had this this unused lyric about the whole of the moon, and I put the piano rhythm and the unused lyric together, and suddenly, bang! Yeah, how did it uh, continue to grow? I mean, there the accents on there, the ding 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 ding, and then the yeah. squiggly guitar solo. Yes, yeah. so the squiggly guitar happening in the background. Are you figuring that out in the studio, like layering things on top, or how did you envision that? Well, those came much later. The, the first, uh, um, the first vision I had for the song was that it would be based around that piano rhythm, but that it would it would sound like a carousel or a fairground. And I didn't quite know what was going to provide that color. In the end, it was the synthesizer part. The that Carl Wallinger played, and and I had asked him to play something. Carnivalesque, mm. uh, and I think the 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 template I gave him was was nineteen ninety nine by Prince, which had that kind of Ooh. fruity, rubbery synthesizer sound. Yeah. And so Carl concocted with that direction. Carl concocted the part, uh, and and I knew it would be a very straight drum drum groove, just a boom, ba, boom, ba. Yeah. That that was the anchor yeah. for all the color to to fly off in all directions. And then all those other things like the, the big Ben chime pianos, that was me. And the, the squiggly guitar at the beginning and the end, that was me as well. Um, those were little sundries that were added towards the end of the recording. Mm. There's also and a percussionist who came in and he does these things that go ka-dunk-dunk. <laughs> little funny. Just in the very beginning of the song, in yes. the first five seconds, you hear this, it goes jing, 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 that's right. It's a percussion player. <laughs> Love that. Okay, last thing. The, you know, blaze like a comet and then that explosion afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. That moment, I mean, in a tremendously emotional song, for whatever reason, that song just shoots it off, into, or that part shoots it off into the stratosphere. Who thought of that? Uh, that was me. That was Yes. Me. Good work, Mike. <laughs> you came like a comet, and I thought, let's have a let's have a sound effect. Oh yeah, it came like a comet. Yeah. Yes, and and it was from a BBC uh, sound effects records. It was a firework, and um, we put it through a lexicon echo unit to give it that sort of comet tail. Uh-huh. And then the, then the 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 coup de gras was that the sax solo should explode. Uh-huh. Comet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's a work of brilliance. And I mean, not to do you, uh, there are. Dozens of works of brilliance within the Waterboys canon. Is that the one I'm curious that you get the most like feedback on, or is that 
that the one, or is it Fisherman's Blues, or is it, what is it? Fisherman's Blues is our most covered song. Oh, is it really? Yeah, but the whole of the moon is the best known one. And, yeah. and like to give you an example, I was walking down down the down the road yesterday, and our postman said, uh, "That song you're famous for, the whole of the moon." I heard it in Spain last week. Oh. So, the song you're famous for. There that's he, it. He said, yes, <laughs> that's great. I finally was able to see you in concert uh, here in Denver a couple of years ago, right before lockdown. Well, it's probably yeah. two and a half, three years ago now. And um, yes, and it was so good. I had been waiting for decades to see the Waterboys in concert. Here you were, and I'm standing pretty close to the stage in front of the piano, and you close it out with "Hole of the Moon" and come over and stand, you know, five feet from me playing that riff and everything. It was a huge moment. So I have to ask: It feels like in the last three or four albums, specifically, that you're writing songs in a completely different way. It feels like it's you messing around with drum loops and samples and hip hop beats and whatever else and making almost like dance music beds and and then writing your lyrics or your poetry or whatever over the top. Am I on to something? Who th- why did you why are you doing this? Well, sometimes it works like that. Uh, okay. on, the, on the new album, All Souls Hill, I worked with a co-producer called Simon Dine. Uh-huh. And Simon's English. He, he did a lot of work with Paul Weller. That's okay. what he's probably best known for. Uh, and what he does is he, he creates these mashups, these instrumental beds, and then he sends them to his, his various artist collaborators, of whom I am one. And and he, he'll send me a, a file of maybe 10, 10 of these, and they all last about a minute and a half, two minutes. And I listen down to them, and, and if one of them suggests a tune to me or, or really takes my fancy, then I, I work on it. And so it's, it's quite a novel way of working for me because sometimes I've been writing songs so long, John, sometimes I actually get bored of my own chord sequences and tunes and rhythms. And to, to be able to work on something that, that, uh, a respected collaborator has sent me is a real thrill for me. And, and the only thing I have to write is the melody. And I really enjoy that. For example, uh, the title track, All Souls Hill.
Simon sent me all the music for that. Uh, uh, I I wrote the the top line melody and edit structure the the, the, the song structure. I edited it together, but, uh-huh. but it, it's it's his chords and his his sort okay. of musical sense. And and a funny thing about it is that now that we're gearing up for some live concerts to to coincide with the album, I have to learn how to play the songs. And because I didn't write them, I yeah. don't know how to play them. <laughs> That's so true. Like when I listen yeah. to Here We Go Again. The more the things appear to change, the more they seem to stay the same. I'm learning how to be a star. The band are waiting in the bar. We've got a number to rehearse. It uh, like did he come up with talk about you know piano riffs and stuff? There's a yeah, there's a dominant one in there, but a lot of like drum and bass and uh, beats and stuff like that yeah. too. Yeah. So did he send you that bed fully formed and you wrote the lyrics and recorded over the top? He sent me an early version of it that just had the chorus, the, okay. the piano riff. And, and I wrote the Here We Go Again, singing yeah. along with that piano riff. And I sent it to him and I said, I'd like to make this work, but it needs something different to happen for a verse. So he concocted, the, there are two different verse variations. He concocted those and sent them back to me. And um, I can't remember if he did the structure on that one or, or if it was me. And um, almost all the music on that one is is his creation okay. i don't even know if i i don't know if i played anything on that i think i just sang on it yeah that's what i was wondering because i when i listen mm. to some of the songs on the album is it in my dreams suddenly yeah. Yeah, yeah in my dreams too ever since i was a child I step on a bus and notice
Like, are there are there band members playing on this, or is it kind of all something that came by way of Simon? That one uh, came from Simon as well. I play lead guitar on it. Okay. Uh, Greg, Greg Morrow, the great drummer from Nashville, who, who does a lot of work with the Water Boys, he's on that Modern Blues album. In fact, mm-hmm. he played the drums. The bass, I think. Oh God, I don't remember. I think it's oh, our okay. bass player Angus is is uh-huh. playing bass. Uh, band members play on, on quite a lot of them. Brother Paul, our keyboard player from from Memphis, he plays on, on several of the tracks. And okay. Ralph, our, our ex drummer who who left recently, he plays on three or four of them himself. Okay, I yeah. just was wondering if there was what kind of like collaboration was going on, and because it yeah. it sounds almost like a guy cooking up beats in his studio and and almost rapping over the top. Well, I I want to. We probably shouldn't get into it, but I'm going to ask anyway. The liar is, first of all, God bless you for writing and recording that song because it speaks to my way of thinking as well. The word was old, the ink was dry. A vulture flew, the eagle screeched. When the liar was in. a lot of frustration going on in the world right now and that song i feel like encapsulates so much of it so perfectly mm. how do you, how are you feeling these days are you optimistic at all it's a difficult moment really because if uh, if in your country if the democrats lose the midterms and if they lose the next election i don't know what's going to happen to american democracy and that that's yeah. that's uh, concerning yes for, for of the world uh, at the moment with with russia invading ukraine I'm, I'm encouraged by the the unity between the the western nations mm-hmm. and the, the rallying to support ukraine and i, I um i suppose in, in one way while it's 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 terrible what, what russia is doing but in one way it's almost a relief that they've that the, the russian federation has shown itself mm-hmm. uh, it, it no longer has this fig leaf of respectability it's shown itself to be a bloodthirsty regime of war criminals. And and we can all see that. Uh, maybe the Chinese government can't see it, but but most right-thinking people can see that. Yeah. And so I'm glad that they're exposed. Yeah. yeah. But what's going to happen, I do not know. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> it's a scary time. Speaking of scary times, <clears throat> on Passing Through, there's that beautiful, I mean, the whole song is beautiful, but that really beautiful section about George Floyd. George Floyd. 
Floyd sighed On the dreadful day he died I filmed his murder on my phone So all the world could see it too By the time the news was known George was already home His sacrifice made While he was passing through There, as you just said, between the liar and passing through, there are specific um, allusions and moments on this album that speak to what's happening in America. And you used to live here, and I know that America, what's happening in America, affects everybody, for better or worse. But why, why did you feel like you needed to write that song, "Passing Through"? And the George Floyd part specifically is just so beautiful. Well, Passing Through is an old country folk song from the Oh, it is. Oh, I didn't know. It sounds like it would be. I didn't know for sure. Yeah. And I learned it from a version that Leonard Cohen, he he did it on a live album Mm. and uh, about 50 years ago, uh, 1972, this record came out, and I heard it then. And it had a really great first verse, the verse about I saw Adam leave the garden, and it really fantastic chorus. But I didn't really like the rest of the words. They didn't live up to the promise of, of the chorus. And so I wrote the rest of the verses myself, uh, the Jesus verse, Shakespeare, Sitting Bull, Martin Luther King, George Floyd, and the last verse. I've even got a verse about Hank Williams, but I didn't include that one. Uh, and and I wrote them over a period of years. And I think the the... Jesus and George Floyd ones were written while I was making this record, but the others had been written some years ago. And it was a song that I used to sing at parties and um, or informal get-togethers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to do something on this record that had a gospel flavour, and I went through all the songs I knew, and that one jumped out uh, as something that could, that could be delivered with a, a gospel feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we put a, a small gospel troupe of singers on it. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's nothing like a gospel choir on a song. Yeah, it's the best. When you, you talk about writing songs, do you? I mean, I feel like in some ways you're almost as much a poet as you are a lyric writer. And I was curious how you differentiate yourself. When you, first of all, do you write poetry as often or frequently as maybe you jot down lyrics? And when you do, is it always a poem to you, or do you always think about a what could be if a poem you're writing could be a song? I'm a lyricist, really. And 95% of my textual writing is lyrics. Okay. Uh, I, but I do write poems occasionally. And uh, I don't think I don't think my poems are very good, really. Uh, really? They, they don't get published. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I turn them into songs. The, the first song on, on All Souls Hill, the title track, began as a poem. Really? And I retooled it as a song. And even The Liar started as a, a poem, a, a sort of um, comedic poem about Trump. 
that I posted on Twitter, uh, mm. but I, I toughened it up and made it scan correctly for a song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I was thinking it feels like, like I was saying this, uh, the last few albums feel like you kind of extend, you know, singing or reciting lyrics or whatever, or poetry over dance beats. But I was listening back to the first album and like rags. That sounds like a similar thing. I mean, it sounds like a poem that you've written kind of put over a bed of music. So I guess this isn't that uncommon. You've been doing this for a while. Yeah, Rags began as a poem. I figured, yeah. Yeah, and I would have changed it a little bit to to fit into a song, but basically began as a poem. And several of the spoken word pieces, uh, In My Dreams, I suppose, is a poem because it doesn't scan and rhyme uh, in a structured way like a lyric would. And on the last record, um, Good Luck Seeker, which came out two years ago, I think there are about seven spoken word pieces, and I suppose some of those were out as poems. Yeah. You, I mean... You could you could compile all these in a little book. Mike Scott's poetry. Sell it at <laughs> Wild Boy shows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. You could. Okay, yeah. so I gotta ask a really super nerdy question. Um, on the last album, Seeker album, there's that song Dennis Hopper. I had Ian McNabb on here last year, and I know you two are friendly. Yeah. And he put out a song around the same time about called Harry Dean Stanton. Yes. And I thought, is it a coincidence that these two guys, two of the best there's ever been, by the way, who know each other are each writing songs at the same time about old classic American movie stars? 
Yeah, it's a nice coincidence, isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. We, we corresponded about that. We, I, he told me, I sent him Dennis Hopper and he sent me Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. <laughs> so it is just a coincidence. You weren't sitting yeah. around in a pub somewhere thinking, let's write songs about old movie stars. Well, just an, a nice coincidence. Okay. Yeah. And there's one on this album, um, Hollywood Blues. It's really yeah. mostly about Dennis Hopper. Dirty feathers in her hair Jewels on her feet And when the fair was over We went drinking in the sundown She said, pull yourself together, boy And put that silly gun down You're giving me the bust up, broke down, burned out Whichever way you lace the cake, you lose What roads a blind man meant to do When he's got the bust up, broke down, burned out Hollywood blues I've been in this game too long not know when I'm losing. Oh, what's the fixation with Dennis Hopper? Oh, I, I love Dennis Hopper. Um, I, I came to him through his art, through his photography. Uh, I was in London. I, I knew him as a kind of counterculture figure, a bloke from Easy Rider and all. I knew a little bit about him. Uh, and I was in London it was seven or eight years ago. And, and I was I was in uh, in in uh, Mayfair. That part of London, Mayfair. I was very close to Savile Row, where the Beatles rooftop concert and all that happened. And just around the corner of Savile Row is a, is a very famous art gallery, the, the Royal Academy. And they had a Dennis Hopper exhibition. I had to look twice because I thought, Dennis Hopper is an actor. What do they mean, exhibition? And it was an exhibition of his photography. So I went in and it was all these incredible photographs from, from the 60s that he'd shot in black and white, mostly around Los Angeles. And and. I, I kind of fell in love with his eye, with what yeah. he chose to shoot and how he how he framed the shots and 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 that that drew me into his life story and and I found his life story absolutely fascinating. You know, he was he was in the iconic films. I hate to use that word, but this is the proper use of that word. He was in the iconic films of three decades. You know, he was in Rebel Without a Cause, Easy Rider, and Apocalypse Now. And that's quite an achievement. Four, if you count Blue Velvet in the eighties. Right. Right. And what a trajectory of his life, and all the things that he participated in. He was he was he was ahead of the curve on pop art. I and mean, he was he was one of the first people to to notice Andy Warhol and he championed Andy Warhol on the LA art scene just when Warhol was beginning. So he he was uh, zealot like in in the in many of these late 60s moments. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting that he would touch you that much to write a couple of songs about him. Uh, um, more than that. I've, well, I've written that, more about him. Okay. Speaking of movies, I wanted to yeah. mention something. So we have some Patreon. Oh, are you okay? Yeah, I just I dropped something. Hang on, I'm just trying to find it. Okay. A little guitar tuner that I was fiddling with. Here it is. There you go. Uh, okay. okay, so 
<clears throat> we have some Patreon supporters, and uh, I always tell them who I'm interviewing if they want to yeah. submit questions, they can. So, okay. <sighs> Let me, this is kind of a long one. I can trim this down. Let me see. Uh, first of all, Philip Hopwood thinks you're a genius. And he was, um, he wanted to know about, no, 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 I'm sorry. Let me restart that. Matthew Quinlan uh, wants to know specifically, first of all, he loves you. And uh, he wondered about the Dutch movie from 2016. I don't yeah. know about this movie. Was there a documentary made about you guys or something? Oh, it's, it's a drama called Water Boys. It's a, a father and son oh. comedic drama. Uh, but it, it uses Waterboys music, and there's an appearance of the Waterboys playing live in the film. Okay. Was that all that you were involved in it? Just, Or did they have to clear the script with you, or how did it go? He, the, the filmmaker, uh, Robert Jan Westdyke, he, he came to Dublin to meet me a few years earlier, and I, I okayed him to use the music. I liked his script. Uh -huh. I didn't have to prove it or anything, but I did have to give my permission for him to use the music. And he wanted to have, a, a as part of the story, a Waterboys concert that this father and son attend. So we staged that. Uh, in the film, it's supposedly Edinburgh or Glasgow, but it, in reality, it was filmed at the Paradiso Club in Amsterdam. Oh, wow. In 2014. Okay. Yeah. Do, you, uh, do you have much of a say of when your songs are used in movies? He was asking specifically yeah. about something like About Time. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. They, they always come to me for clearance. Mm. Yeah. That's got to be some nice. We, we try to sensitively cover the business side of thing on things on here. I'm guessing something like Hole of the Moon or Fisherman's Blues. I think that was in Goodwill Hunting, if I remember right. It, uh, those, that's probably some decent mailbox money whenever that happens. At the time of them clearing it, yes, there will be a payment. I don't think there's much after that. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, give me one second here. Philip Hopwood's question is kind of long, so let me see how I want to uh, break this down. Um, okay. Um, okay, so Philip has some questions that are also mine as well. Uh, he wants to know specifically around the creation of Dream Harder, which is <laughs> sort of... Um, in the Waterboys canon, kind of a kind of an anomaly. It's you, I think, with some session guys. I really like the song Corn Circles. Appearing all over the land. Corn circles. Appearing all over the land. Nobody knows where they come from Nobody understands Corn circles Mysterious symbols in the fields Corn circles Mysterious Excellent. Symbols guitar work in there i don't know who's doing it but it's chris bruce who chris bruce from chicago really yeah okay i gotta look up chris bruce what was yeah, going he, into dream harder well dream harder was when there, there was no water boys at the time uh-huh 
And the, the band, the old band that had made the, the two albums in Ireland had imploded. And I, I had split up with my old collaborator, Anthony Thistlethwaite, the sax man. And the, there was nobody left. And I'd moved to New York. And I'd planned to, to form a new Waterboys in New York. And, and I met lots of good musicians, but I didn't find a group of people that had the chemistry that would become the Waterboys. But I still had to make a record. And Geffen Records, to whom I signed, were pushing me, come on, you got to start making the record. So, And I had the songs. So I went into the studio and I put together a, a group of, of hired players. I've done that a few times. I did it. I, I did it even, even you know, the first Waterboys record, apart from Anthony, it was hired players. It just mm -hmm. it, it led to the foundation of a band. But with Dream Harder, it didn't. Mm -hmm. And so, I, and I, I was burned out at the time. I'd had five years of managing the Waterboys myself, or, or rather struggling with no manager. And lots of work on the road and making of the Fisherman's Blues record, which was very high pressure. And I was tired. And, and when, I, when I hear Dream Hard Drug, I can hear me functioning on about 50%. Oh, really? Power, yeah. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the pressure for Fisherman's Blues. I, is that because um, this is the sea had been so successful that people are wanting more mm. of that from you? It's partly that, but it's also because the music had changed so profoundly when we made Fisherman's Blues. And we had so many songs and so many recordings. And the job of pulling it all together into a cohesive album was, was beyond me at the time. And when I look back now, I can see I, I had enough music for an album from the first few weeks of sessions, really. And we could have come with a record very quickly. But because I had other songs that I wanted to record and I had ideas about how it should sound, we kept going and we kept going and we kept going. And, you know, I, I learned the skill of, of how to gather musicians in a studio, inspire them and capture us playing live. I mastered that early on in the Fisherman's Blues period. But what I didn't master was what to then do with it. And, and you know, when I listen to, to records by people like Neil Young, uh, an artist who's done that for most of his career, the trick is, is to capture a feeling. And Neil captures a feeling on those recordings. And if there's a little mistake or there's a little out of tune bit, that's okay. It's just uh, just part of, the, part of the sound of what happened that day. And the more important thing is that the, the magical take is on the record. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have that attitude. I had grown up in the late 70s and early 80s during an era of overdubbing and and, and very fine-tuned records that were, were done to perfection. And it was hard for me to lose that attitude. And if there was something on a track that I considered a mistake, like the drummer speeds up a little bit, or or I sing a line out of tune, or the guitar slips out of tune, or the bass player makes a mistake, I, I thought, oh my God, we have to re-record it. And I, I couldn't live and let live. So I just kept going and going and going. And in the end, we had 60 or 70 tracks. And the pressure really was, was upon me to finish the record and to make the selections. And I found that incredibly difficult. That's fascinating. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, shortly after that comes Room to Roam. Yeah. And almost almost every song, it has a ton of songs on that album too, but they're all almost, they're all like two minutes long. <laughs> and it, you know, I mean, there's well, a couple that, that are like long ones, but most of them are yeah. super short. Is that was that some kind of a response to the stress of Fisherman's Blues? 
No, no, that was just actually it's very, very hard work doing two minute songs. Really? <laughs> yeah, we, we you know, they're fully arranged and they've got all the instrumentalists on them. Totally. So it takes as much, as much work to perfect a two minute song as it does a seven minute song. <laughs> You've got many instruments to mix. But what it was, it was just a creative edge. I just loved short songs, these yeah. little miniatures. Uh, and we had a very strong uh, Celtic traditional music influence in the band at the time. We had Sharon Shannon and Accordion. We, we had three trad players in the band. And trad music is a, is a, is on a very, uh, how can I say it? It's not that it's played faster or that the tempos are faster, but it's more... It's kind of on a high vibration and its events happen very quickly. And so a set of tunes, uh, maybe a set of three jigs in, in Irish music, which has got an incredible amount of melodic and rhythmic information in it, might last one minute, 50 seconds. And we had gone so far into that world that that was affecting the way I wrote songs and I was making my songs work like that. And often the songs would be based on an Irish jig or a uh -huh. Scottish jig. Uh, and so they were coming out really short and I loved it. And I just loved the 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 edge of, of getting a little one minute, 30 second masterpiece, uh -huh. a, a miniature, a, a jeweled miniature. I just yeah. loved them. I it loved was really, too. it was good fun. I believe it. So, I mean, you built your bona fides on these traditional Irish Celtic songs and sounds and stuff. But then, I mean, especially the last few years, I would say almost from around the Dream Harder period till now, it's less of an influence. Did you feel like it was just time to move on? Does it not um, move you the way that it did? Did you feel like you said everything you had to say? Well, it's still there in the background and it, it comes up every now and again. There's a track on on Where the Action Is, which was our 2019 album uh, called um, Then She Made the Lassie's Low, and that's a Scottish traditional tune, and there's a little fiddle, a fiddle hornpipe on that. the rashes, the sweetest hours that ever I spent. I spent among the lasses, nature swears the lovely her noblest work she classes ooh. Her apprentice hands she tried on man And then she made the lasses ooh. Green grow the rashes ooh. Green grow the rashes ooh. The sweetest hours that Does, it's still it's in the background it's something that never really leaves me but it's not where I began I began as a rock and roller and, and the early Waterboys records are, are really rock and roll records influenced more than anything else by New York music like Patti Smith and television oh. Richard Hell that was what I loved man and Bruce Springsteen and 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 the the traditional Celtic influence came in with Steve Wickham the fiddler who joined just at the end of the third album yeah yeah. Okay. Maybe, you know, that's right. I, uh, 
maybe there's just so, your voice, your singing voice is unmistakably Irish, has a lilt to it. Maybe that's what I. Maybe that's what you hear. Even if you're not hearing, even if you're not hearing the Water Boys doing Irish music, you still yeah. place it there because your voice is so uh, succinct in that way. Uh, you mentioned Patty Smith. I talked to Lenny Kay a couple of weeks ago, and it was just one of the best. What did Patty Smith and that and his, that group mean to you? How did it influence you? Well, they were my favorite band, like 76, 77, 78. I was a huge PSG fan. All the fans called them the PSG, Patty Smith Group. Uh-huh. Nobody calls them that now, but that's what <laughs> I thought of them as. And I loved the group as much as I loved Patty Smith. She uh-huh. was great, of course. She was great. Her energy and her improvisations, fantastic. But I also loved the sound the band made. Lenny's guitar and bass playing, J.D. Doherty and drums, who later played with the Waterboys, and the, the great keyboard player, Richard Soule. He was fantastic. He could play jazz, classical, uh, and also a great improviser. So I loved the band, the sound that they made. I remember one of the first things I read about them, the writer was saying that a guy in the audience described them as intellectual garage band music. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what they were. And they were exactly what I wanted to hear at that time, just, just before punk hit. Yeah, I yeah. could hear that. Uh, television as well. I mean, that Marky Moon is still... One of my favorite albums ever, oh, maybe the too, best yeah. debut albums ever too. Yeah, and you know, I had never. I would. I was reading some of that about you, getting ready to talk to you, and it kind of surprised me a little bit. But I guess not. When you think about um, an a band or artists <laughs> that are finding their way, that intellectual garage rock, like you said, the poetry yeah. aspect, the yeah. different sound, different ways of presenting punk. If punk is, you know, in the DIY spirit i guess that really is the bedrock of the water boys i hear that now and i didn't yeah. i wouldn't have made the connection before okay i was a big dylan influence on in the water boys well, as well. Of i grew yeah. up with the stones and dylan and the beatles and and, and soul music as well yeah uh, the pop singles of the time you know the four tops and and all yes. that oh yeah. man so good tell me about the yates album um because i have that one too and it seems like that's something that could have been made i mean that's a no-brainer. You putting music to Yeats poetry, that's a no-brainer. And if I remember correctly, you had been wanting to do that for a long time or yeah. thinking about doing it. What's the story? I went out to the Hazelwood Because a fire was in my head Back in 88 on Fisherman's Blues, I put his poem, The Stolen Child, to music. It was the closing track on Fisherman's Blues. And there's another one on on Dream Harder, actually, Love and Death, was the second one I put to music. And and around that time, I thought, I I was aware that a few other artists had set Yeats to music. Um, Bono had done one. 
Christy Moore, the great Irish singer, had done one. And Van Morrison had done one. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if, if you could put together an album, maybe even a stage show of different artists doing interpretations of Yeats? And in the end, um, there weren't enough other people doing it, and I, I did it myself. Mm. And over the years, every few years, I would go back to my, my Yeats book. In fact, I've got it here. This was my Yates book. It's there you go. Poems. It was a wedding present. I've been married three times, but my first wedding was, was, was given to me uh, as a present. And uh, over many years, I, I would go through the book, and and if a poem suggested a tune to me, I, I would write the tune. And by, by the end of the century, by the end of the 20th century, I had five or six of them. And in 2005, Steve Wickham, uh, who was our, our fiddle player, who lives in Sligo in the Yates country in the west of Ireland, he did a concert at the Yates Summer School. And he, he performed The Stolen Child. He, he had a, a, an actor read the lyric. Uh, and he told me all about the gig. And I thought, God, wouldn't it be great to do a whole concert of Yates songs at the Yates Summer School? And it, it kick-started me into going back through the very same book. And, and I put maybe a dozen more Yeats poems to music in a sort of one a day explosion of inspiration. And that's what became our Yeats album. Mm. Yeah. It's a perfect marriage. The, the two of you, I, it, you, it makes so much sense. You know, I was thinking about um, covers that you, I always find it interesting. What, what songs people choose to cover? Why do they mm. do it? Is it because they like it? Do they think they can improve on it? Do they think they have their own spin on it? And I remember the early days of Napster and I would get on there and try and find kind of bootleg things that you can't find anywhere else. Mm. And I found uh, you doing Purple Rain. mentioned mm. prince earlier i'm not yeah. even sure if that it was a live version i'm not even sure if that's on a water boys album somewhere maybe on like an odds and sods kind of thing yeah, what? there was a there was a, a, a roughly released live album included it okay is yeah. that was that like a staple of your live shows there for a while what made first of all it's excellent but what made you do that we first did it in 1986, John, uh, when it was uh, almost a new song. It came uh -huh. out in 1984. Uh, and 
it was just, it was an audacious encore at a time when nobody was covering Prince because he was so impossibly great and so far ahead of everybody else at that time. That was his absolute peak period. Uh, and we sort of thought, oh, we'll take him on. And we would do Purple Rain as an encore. And, and then we stopped doing it. And, and about seven or eight years ago, one of the band members said, come on, we've got to do that old version you used to do of Purple Rain. Let's do that. So, so we did it. And, and it actually was really great to play. And Steve Wickham could play Prince's guitar solo note for note on Fuzz Fiddle, which uh -huh. was a great uh, yeah. novelty. And a great yes. climax. So we started playing it again, and we played it in uh, we played it in Minneapolis at First Avenue, where of course the movie was filmed. Uh -huh. and, and I remember when when I hit the opening chords, this sort of <gasps> dash <laughs> from the crowd. Whoa, they're doing something sacred here. But man, we 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 killed it. We delivered it. It was great. It is and, great. Yeah, and, you know, and you know, Prince Prince did the whole of the moon. Did he really? He really did. He did two different versions of the whole of the moon. <laughs> So, so there's a reciprocation here. Yes. He did the whole of the moon as a piano ballad at one or maybe more of his uh, solo piano shows towards the end of his life. Really? And, and in the last few months of his life, he did a Black, uh, a Black Lives Matter benefit, uh, in I think in Minneapolis, and he did a, a, a funk version of it, uh, oh, retooled as a Black Lives Matter anthem. And it's, it's on the internet. You can find it on YouTube. Okay, okay, I yeah. will. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, Mike, not to... You've you've been at this for 40 plus 45 years or so. It must blow your mind when things like that happen. Prince of all people. You're this guy, yeah. Irish guy. And Prince is well, so I'm Scottish. I live in Ireland, but I'm Scottish. Oh, are you really? I wasn't yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where are you from yeah. in Scotland? I'm from Edinburgh. Are you really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, I, I'm thrilled that Prince is recording it, but I, I, for all that, I think Prince is great. I don't put him on a pedestal. I, 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 he's he's just a, a fellow artist, and I'm thrilled he recorded it. Uh, uh, he that he sang my song, and and I hope he's well wherever he is. I hope he's thrilled that the Waterboys did Purple Rain as well. I bet he, <laughs> bet he heard it as well. And you know, Hole of the Moon gets played by a lot of bands. The Killers play it. Did you know? I that? love the Killers. No, yeah, they that's play great. It. Yeah. Do you um, Leeches did it recently? Jack Antonoff's band. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Do you? Uh, I'm I'm guessing in this career of yours, you've met a few heroes, or, or yeah. you know, rub shoulders with somebody. Can, tell me a story about that. Who did you meet that really met a met meant a lot to you? Oh, I've met met many of my favorites. Um, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Dylan, Van Morrison, Boy, Patti Smith. I met Patti Smith when I was nineteen. Because uh, that was the punk days. It was kind of easy to to meet bands in, in those days. I have met lots of them. Neil Young? I've, you know, I've played gigs with Neil Young, but he's not very sociable. Yeah, I've played gigs sense. opening for Neil Young at festivals, but never seemed to get to meet him for some reason. Yeah. Um, so I, I would like to, to have a chat with Neil, yeah. I bet. I bet. Yeah. You'd be great. You two, I could see you two having a good chat. <laughs> I don't know yeah, how to sit. I'd like to meet Willie Nelson. Oh, yes. There you go. Yeah. Get on his bus, just smoke some weed for a few hours yeah. and relax. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's smiling. He knows. Uh, okay. Yeah. What about things like collaborations? That was another part of Philip's question. I was wondering about this too, because as you know, I mean, there's scores of people have come in and out of the water boys. I'm wondering, was that always the plan? Did you always, or in the originally, did you think, 
I'm going to form like any other kid would think I'm going to form a garage band. We're going to, there's going to be the four of us. We're going to go out there and conquer the world. And before you know it, you've had to adjust as people come in and out and you be the, the lone pillar. Well, it may seem like that, but that wasn't the way it was. My template was the plastic Ono band. Oh. John and Yoko and whoever was around. Uh, and and if I had it in front of me, I could read to you the, the first Waterboys press release, which kind of set it out that that it was going to be my band and it would be an ever-changing lineup as the music required. Uh-huh. And, and that's the way it's been. Wow. Yeah. I wondered if that was an adjustment or if that was something you kind of had to adapt to after the fact, but no, that you're into That's it. Yeah. I can see your, there's the microphone behind you. Do you record right there in your, in the room you're in right now? Often. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just play on that piano and sing something right yeah. there behind yeah, you. There's a couple of guitars around. There's a guitar on top of the piano there. Yeah. 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 That's why. And it, it, is that where you like, I mean, in home recordings and home studios now, would would something you would record right there be like in the final mix, or do you yeah, just do demos? Really? Yeah, yeah, I mixed. Uh, I think I mixed All Souls Hill in this room. You, you really? between speakers, you can't see them. But... There they are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's wild. Okay, so a couple of people asked. You may get asked this a lot. Um, would you ever? Do you and Carl Wallinger keep in touch? Would you ever, he was only in there briefly. I mean, he's basically yeah. one of these people. He just happens to have the bigger name because world party was a mm. successful band. Mm. Do you guys still keep in touch? Do you, would you ever collaborate on anything else? We don't keep in touch. No. And, and part of that is because uh, he's always said bad things about me in the press oh. and his interviews. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. And, and that makes it difficult to sustain a relationship. And so I have very little interest in pursuing it. But he's a talented guy. I, I wouldn't really, I, I don't miss him musically much as much as I liked what he did with me at the time, but I, I don't miss him. And, and I work with people who, who I think are actually better than he was. So Okay. Okay. Good to know. Um, what uh, Philip was asking specifically too about the song Return of Pan, or, or mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Return of Pan. Uh, which he just thinks is one of the greatest songs. I stood upon the balcony with my brand new bride. The clink of bells came drifting down the mountainside. When in our sight something moved. Alive. He moves amid the modern world in disguise. It's possible to look into his immortal eyes. He's like a man you'd meet any place until you recognize that ancient face. I, I don't know enough. I'm not very smart, Mike, as you can probably tell. On <laughs> on This is the Sea, there's the Pan Within. And then on Dream Harder, there's Return of Pan. What is yeah. Pan? Oh, Explain Pan this. is the, the, the Greek god. Is it? Okay, I assumed. I don't know yeah. enough about 
what he stands for to know why you'd write about him. Oh, he's a god of um, wild places, uh, nature. He's a nature god. And and he, as you probably know, his his torso is is a man, and his legs are a goat, and he has horns. Oh, sure, that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what you mean. I forgot that's what we're talking about. Sure, of course. Okay, but you write. Why? I mean, are you so fascinated with him? You want to write a couple songs about it? Yeah, actually, I've written more than those two as well. There's a track on. Um, where the action is. The closing track on that album is The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh-huh. which was a, a, a title from a chapter of the book The Wind in the Willows, which is uh, an English-language classic. Sure. Children's book. Uh, and in the chapter The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, the, the animals, the, the animals about whom, whose adventures the book follows, have an encounter with the god Pan. Okay. And so I read a, a piece, a passage from that chapter on the album. Okay. That's right. Okay. That song where the action is, that feels, we've been talking about your writing process and everything. That feels like a full-bodied band song, yeah. um, like everyone playing their parts very organically. Like and in a room together playing. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. video i think is you walking around new york city with like your phone out I'm here in or something. tokyo actually it's oh tokyo, tokyo is that it i can't re- i couldn't remember yeah, yeah. and yeah. I've, got, I've got it's a selfie video yes. I've, got, I've got one i've got one phone in my top pocket which has got the sound uh-huh and the other phone's there and i'm singing into it and i'm walking <laughs> around trying not to bump into people yeah <laughs> I love that you just made that Elvis snarly lip face because yeah. that is you do that in the video. It uh, that was classic. I remember seeing that thinking, boy, that that is such an effective video. And it's just Mike carrying the phone around everywhere. That's yeah, all you need. I'm doing it. I, did, I must have done it about 10 or 12 times. Every time I finish, I'd go back to the start point. Okay, I'll try another take. <laughs> and sometimes I would do it and find that the record button hadn't gone on properly. <laughs> and I'd have to do it again. It was quite an experience. It was very good fun. Just some crazy guy walking around Tokyo yeah. over and, and over. You know, the thing about the thing about Tokyo is, you know, if I'd done that in Glasgow, someone would have said, "What are you doing? Who are you meant to be?" 
And if I'd done it in, in London, people would have been photobombing me. But in Tokyo, everybody minds their own business. And it's such a technological culture that, that the sight of a guy filming himself, it's not too unusual. That is classic. <laughs> that is classic. All right. So what's left for water boys to do what, what i mean you've been really prolific it's like four or five yeah. albums in four or five years is there more yeah. what are you doing uh, well there's this one coming out next week and then i've got the the follow-up is already recorded really almost finished yeah i'm working on that just now and it's a really beautiful record it's steve Earle sings a song Ooh. Um, and uh taylor taylor goldsmith from dawes uh-huh. sings on a song with me uh, and MC Taylor from, from his called messenger sings on a song. They do some co-lead vocals and uh, we're, we're hoping to get a few other people on it and it's going to be a really beautiful record. And I'm also working on a box set of, uh, of the, all the music we made during the making of this is the sea. Oh, wow. Yeah, in fact, I've already finished working on the music. I'm writing the book that goes with it at the moment. That's interesting because I have the, double the two disc collector's edition yeah. of this is the scene yeah. yeah and it's got a lot of that you know the demos and the outtakes and stuff yeah. like that so there's more there's a lot more yeah it's, it's uh, gonna be five cds of uh, it's not all previously unreleased because some of it was on that two cd that you uh-huh. mentioned uh-huh. and some of the piano demos were released as well but but most of it is previously unreleased four full cds five okay. full cds wow yeah. How do you feel about looking back on your career? I mean, are you somebody who can embrace things like the like how beloved an album like this, The Sea or Fisherman's Blues yeah. is? Yeah. Or does it is it like, no, I'm doing new things. I I keep making music, you know? Well, it's both, really. I, I love This is the Sea and Fisherman's Blues. I love all those early Waterboys records. I'm very proud of them, if if proud is a thing. I, I love them. And, and I, I've had such a great time working on This is the Sea for the box set. Same as I did when I worked on the Fisherman's Blues box set 10 years ago. It's just a, a blast working on them. And the music was so great and the times were so good. But I also love the music that, that I work on now. And yeah. I... It's it is difficult being a, a band that, that is an old name. It's hard to get attention when you're an old name. It's almost like the past is working against you. And at radio, radio wants to play the whole of the moon, Fisherman's Blues, How Long Will I Love You, and a few others from those early days because that's what they know. Uh, and yet, I'm I'm putting records on, on the the new songs on the new albums that are just as good, and and would sound just as good on radio, like Where the Action Is or Here We Go Again. Uh, loads of them. And it's really hard to get a purchase on radio because radio just most stations, especially the mainstream ones in the UK, uh, they they just are stuck playing the old stuff. Yeah. And it's not actually a problem with me or the music I'm making. It's a problem with radio. Uh, radio is too conservative and it's too safe and it's too stuck in the past. And here in Ireland, man, there are a couple of good stations, but most of the time I, I hear radios when I'm in taxis. I don't often listen to the radio at home, but I hear it in taxis, and it's almost always music from 40 or 50 years ago wow. that's playing. You're it's, right. music from the, it's not even music from the 60s anymore. That's past. It's music from the 70s and the 80s. And, and I think to myself, my God, imagine if in the 60s 
All the radio stations have been playing music from the 20s and 30s, how boring that would have been. We would never have heard Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds. We would never have got our consciousness expanded. We would never have had all those incredible jumps in culture. And, and I feel radio is almost working against that happening now. There are still adventurous radio stations, I know, but they tend to be niche stations or, or holdovers from the old rock and roll days like WFUV in New York and so on. But mainstream radio, man... It, it's just, it's, it's let us down, I think. It's so interesting you say this. Speaking of Ian McNabb, he and I were having a similar conversation. He was mm. saying similar things. And this is kind of mind-blowing to me because I hold, so that, you know, 80s British music is my favorite kind of music. And I hold people like you and Ian in such high regard. I am, I am 10 times more interested in what Mike Scott is doing than some than a new band is not to mm. take anything away from a new band. Mm. So it seems to me that radio programmers are missing an opportunity to capitalize on that nostalgia. I mean, it's instead of saying you're old, we just want to play Hole of the Moon. Isn't it more interesting to say the guy who did Hole of the Moon that you like so much? Here's what he's doing now. Play him back to back if you have to. You know if what I mean? Yeah, but that makes so and maybe I feel that way because I love you so much and I would want to hear that. But yeah, I just think with this, I mean, 80s concerts and festivals are big business. 80s songs get not that you're just an 80s band, but you know what I'm saying? They get placed in movies all the time. Like, why wouldn't you capitalize on that more and just expand it a little bit? It seems like a no brainer to me, but maybe that's because I want to hear that. Well, radio is just so conservative. We've got Radio 2 in the UK, and and it's a very popular station, but it's popular, I think, because it plays it safe. Mm -hmm. Do you get played on, like, I I had, I spoke with uh, one of the Vapors a few months ago, and they put out their first album in, like, 30 years, and it's really Mm -hmm. good. And he was saying that, you know, it's hard, he was saying the same thing. It's hard, Steve Smith, he was, it's hard to get played anywhere, but they were having some success on, like, Heritage, I think it's what they called it. Heritage Radio. You get played on Heritage Radio? I think we have, yes. I think we have. That's Mike Reed's radio station. Yeah, he's an an old disc jockey from from that period. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I guess the the fate of an album as great as All Souls Hill is just you hope your core audience buys it. You hope you can sell some copies at concerts. You hope it gets placed somewhere. Right? Well, my hopes are, are higher than that. I hope that a song gets picked as the theme of a huge TV show or a that huge movie. Nice. I hope yeah. that, that radio picks up on Here We Go Again or Blackberry Girl and suddenly it breaks through yeah. and gets to gets into the, the culture. That's what I hope for. Yeah, it should. There's no reason it shouldn't. Okay, last thing. What's your favorite story? When you look back over 45 years of doing this, what when you dine out with your friends at a pub or whatever, What's the thing that it's like, you guys, you would never believe? Uh, well, I've got lots of favorite stories, but I'll tell you tell you a very funny one that, that okay. I've been writing about for this book about This Ooh. is the Sea. Okay. Uh, and you, you were asking me, or one of your correspondents was asking about Carl Wallinger. Carl is a, is, is a very, very funny guy. And, you know, he and I had a lot of laughs together. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you two short stories. Well, the first one is we, we went to Paris on a promo trip. This was right at the beginning of the Waterboys. We hadn't even done a concert. We went to Paris on a, a promo trip and, and uh, we, we, we scored some hash 
which is the the uh, Middle Eastern version of pot. We scored some hash on a street in Paris and got very, very stoned in our hotel. And it was a big old European city centre hotel with very, very long, endless corridors. And we got lost. <laughs> a blissful experience, lost in these endless hotel corridors. We just couldn't, we are too out of it. We just couldn't find our way back to our room or to reception. It just seemed, to, every time we got to the end of a corridor, another one began and then another one. And, and, and we began to realise how funny it was that we were lost and we were laughing and laughing. And, and we were lost, but we were completely safe. Uh-huh. It was a blissful feeling. But then suddenly, two guys suddenly appeared on our right and we jumped out of our skin. And when we looked around, it was a mirror. <laughs> We'd scared ourselves. <laughs> so that, that's, that, that's the first, that's the first one. The second one also with Carl, uh, we were in the, we were in the famous Island record studios on Basing street in London where Bob Marley recording all these people. And, we were working on, on the second Waterboys record, A Pig in Place. And um, we'd stayed in the studio. The engineer had gone home and uh, I, I think we might have been smoking reefers. I'm not sure. We were just hanging out together. We're not quite ready to go home yet, just enjoying being in the studio. And there was a, a, a music magazine on this table and we were reading it. And, and there was a, a, a photo article about ZZ Top. And it was a British magazine and some some bright spark had thought, let's dress ZZ Top up as British cricketers for the for the photo article. So there were all these pictures of the three guys from ZZ Top. And of course, the two guys with the huge beards dressed as British cricketers with the, 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 the shin pads and the sweaters and the short trousers and, and old time cricket cats. And they looked so funny. And we were just laughing and laughing and laughing. And then. We read one of the captions and noticed, of course, you can maybe guess what's coming, that the member of the band who didn't have a beard was called Frank Beard. That's right. (laughs) I thought we were going to die with laughter. (laughs) That is hilarious. Yes, Frank Beard, the drummer, does not have a beard. The one guy. So beautiful, isn't it? It is so beautiful. I thought of one more thing before I let you go. Uh, yeah. Tell me about the writing since you're working on, and uh, this is the C is so top of mind for you right now. Don't bang the drum is, I mean, you, you popularized the term big music and that was people, yeah. bands like you two and simple minds and the alarm and yeah. big country took that and ran with it as did the water boys. When I think of big music, I think of a song like don't bang the drum. How did that song come to be? 
did it start out with you just strumming a guitar in your bedroom on a, or did it was it created in the studio it is so grand it was a lyric that i gave to carl wallinger mm. and he recorded a demo he he set it to music and he recorded a demo with a kind of dum 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 to kind of detroit mid 60s groove and lots of keyboards and synths and, and a really good tune and he gave it back to me and and i, I liked it and but when i tried to to sing it myself with that rhythm, the rhythm didn't work for me. So I I turned it into a, a slow dramatic ballad, which uh, I, I didn't think it was going to stay as a slow dramatic ballad, but that shifted the perspective of it so that I could find what was going to emerge. Uh, and out of that, it turned into this uh, boom, cha, boom, boom, cha, boom, cha, that rhythm. Uh, and I created it in the studio with a guitar and piano, it's a wall of sound of guitar and piano and a, and a drum machine playing that groove. And then Carl came back and he played the bass. He didn't play the keyboards, he played the bass on the synthesizer. Man, he was so great at that. Uh, it, one of his greatest contributions to the Water Boys, I think, was his synth bass. You can hear it in the Hole of the Moon as well, that line that goes, doom, 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 doom. Yes. that's him, synth bass, it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, in fact, on, on albums like this is the scene, most of the keyboards are me. He was the really? band's keyboard player live, but most of the keyboards on the record are actually me. On the pan within all the pianos, it's me. He's playing the bass on that song yeah. as well. Wow. Yeah. It's funny the way way, way things <clears throat> seem to be the way they really are. Yeah. And so he played the bass and don't mind the drummer, and then we put Anthony on and sax. And and, and it was the idea was it was a kind of update to Phil Spector's wall of sound for, for yes, midnight. Good point. It's a hard edge. And and it's that. That thing where the 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 it's all climax. Yes. From the from the first chord of the band to the end, it's all climax. That's it. Yes. Well said. All climax. And according to my son, it belongs in a James Bond movie. So there you Excellent. go. Excellent. <laughs> well, Mike, I love you a lot, and I'm so grateful Thank for you. everything you've put in the world. You uh, have made people's lives better with everything that you've done in all stages of your career, it means so much to some of us. So thank you for being you. Thank you, Don. Thanks for letting me know. You bet. Pleasure talking to you, man. You too. All right, there you have it, Mike Scott. I love him. I loved him. I, I'm i worried I came off a little ditzy on here. There was, like, I forgot what a pan was. And uh, I got some of the names of the songs wrong. And I, I was just nervous that I came off sounding like an idiot. But bless his heart, he didn't make me feel that way. So anyway, thank you, Mike. You're a legend. I love these guys. I I really, <laughs> I was so torn up. I wanted to play some deep, deep Waterboys track to close out this episode. Something really obscure and turn you on to something new. And I was so overwhelmed trying to think of what the best song for that would be because there are so many good ones that I gave up and just went with Girl Called Johnny because this is also a classic tune. So anyway, get, if you need help, like figuring out where to begin with the Waterboys, because there are numerous albums of all shapes and sizes, let us know because we can help you with this. These guys are fantastic. And a huge thanks to Brendan Gilmartin for helping set this up. Thank you, Brendan. You're a pro. Um, I don't actually know what we're going to go with next week. I have a bunch of interviews in the can, um, and... Uh, they're pretty much all amazing and I'm not, some are more timely than others. And I kind of got to go through and see what the most timely one is. Uh, so anyway, that I can't tell you, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what's going to come out next week, 
Oh, but be, by all means, please go check out All Souls Hill. It came out last month. And while you're at it, check out all the, la the last few years of albums. Because if you haven't paid attention since the 80s, you're missing out on some good stuff. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for doing this with me. Folks, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Chances are pretty good there's going to be a book club episode coming out this weekend. I will, uh, and it's a fun one. It is a book that several people, many of you, messaged, texted, alerted me to when it came out because you knew it would be perfect for this podcast. That's what the book club this week is likely to be. I'm recording the episode tomorrow, so we'll see if it goes through. Anyway, thanks everybody. We love you. <laughs>